Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Thank you all for joining us today on The Equity Effect. I am your host, Spencer Hughes, and today we are going to transition a little bit away from how we usually do things on the show, rather than just talking about our own personal experiences and observations surrounding physical culture and poverty. We want to shine a light on some of the bigger things happening in our own communities. Well, beyond that, just both on a micro and macro scale. It's coming close to about a year now since COVID-19 has made its mark on the world. Not having an effect on you directly, there is at least someone out there that you know has been affected by the global pandemic. We have all borne witness to the sensationalization of the virus and the implications it has had in all walks of life. We have seen that it is more lethal on vulnerable populations, namely elderly people, individuals with particular chronic diseases such as respiratory illness like COPD, diabetes, obesity, etc. Contrary to what some zealots might say, the virus and its repercussions are not all hearsay. Unfortunately, to discuss this pathologically vulnerable individuals is just merely to scratch the surface of the virus and its ramifications. Today, we look to scrutinize the impact of COVID-19 on individuals in poverty, both in our own communities and around the world. Beyond this, we are looking to bring attention to some of the injustices afflicted on individuals in poverty, apart from the context of the pandemic. With many countries and cities still following some variation of a lockdown or shutdown protocol, everyone and their mother are searching for reasons to hang on, to be happy, to find contentment, Canada is a vastly ethnically diverse nation. Toronto, the most heavily populated city in all of Canada, boasts this cultural diversity with over half of its inhabitants reported to have been born outside of the country. It is because of this cultural diversity that global sporting events bring so much excitement to the city. I mean, it is truly amazing to see how excited and proud people are to be wearing their native country's colors come Olympic season or during the World Cup. Even though more sporting events are not able to host an audience at full capacity yet, there's much to look forward to if you are a sporting fanatic watching from home. With the already delayed Olympics and World Cup scheduled to take place later in 2021, many people are optimistic that these types of events will help release some of the despondency that has followed one of the most significant social and economic disruptions in history. But are these so-called mega events entirely positive or is there something greater beyond all the excitement and hype? Hey everyone, my name is Ben, and uh, over the past couple of years, I've been doing a lot of research on mega events and the impact they have on uh, communities. The mega events that, we're, that I specifically research are Olympic Games and the FIFA World Cup, run by the institutions of the IOC, International Olympic Community, and FIFA. Specifically on the World Cup, uh, today's upcoming World Cup is the first World Cup in a couple of years that uh, consists of a host nation that is a developed country. You know, back in 2014, the World Cup went to Brazil. So specifically talking about the World Cup in Brazil, poverty was a serious problem in Brazil prior to the mega events. And the mega events seemed to exacerbate it. In Brazil, these they have a lot of uh, favelas, these slum areas. And in order to um, in order to successfully run these events, these mega events, the People World Cup in 2014 and the Summer Olympic Games in 2016, many, many changes were made to the social fabric of, of the Brazilian society. One of the main takeaways that uh, from the World Cup that I we can relate to the course content would be that over 20,000 Brazilian citizens were dispossessed of their land in order to make way for structural uh, infrastructure um, projects relating to the World Cup, such as soccer stadiums and stuff like that. In order to make sure that these events were run smoothly, the Brazilian government dispossessed the land of 20,000 people, as I said before. So basically these residents of these favelas that were forced to move were given basically two major options. They were given a compensation from the government for their structural property, which was usually very, very undervalued. And the second option would, they would be relocated to a subsidized housing project in the western edge of the city. Both options seem very unjust. If the residents refuse either options, there is no such thing as taking the government to court. Rather, they were left with nothing or the police would brutally take them out. Also, there was a lot of physical concrete barriers that were placed right in the middle of these favelas, blocking off the space between poverty and 
Olympic and uh, FIFA events, which just proves that socioeconomic difference goes beyond the metaphysical. It actually became physical in this scenario. Diving into Russia a little bit, Russia was 2018 World Cup. They also hosted the Sochi Olympic Games. Just like Brazil, the budget for the World Cup went way over. In Brazil, the estimated cost was around $12 billion, but the total cost came to around $24 billion, which for a developing nation full of poverty is a lot, a lot of capital, which came from the taxpayers' money. In Russia, it was a little bit different. The budget went way overpriced, but the, the factors in this was because the Russian mafia was a big factor in that. So moving over to the Eastern Middle Eastern country of Qatar and talking about poverty there, the common trends in the Middle East actually is to hire a lot of migrant workers because they want to take on these big, big construction projects, but they don't have the manpower to do it. Qatari's population is actually around 2.6 million people. And 2.3 million of those people are actually migrant workers traveling from southeastern countries such as uh, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka. Even though, as I said before, Qatar is one of the most richest countries in the world, it has the economic prowesses to make sure that these migrant workers are well-fed, safe, well-taught, they fail to do this. In the last decade, over 6,500 migrant workers have died due to the poor conditions that the Qatari government has set for them. In this hosting of the World Cup, they were actually building new cities, like cities that have never been there before. And even though that these cities are, are very environmentally safe, safe and uh, keep the environment in mind, the fact that the government has failed to recognize, failed to change any of their motives to construction of these events is very, very sad. Uh, again, over 6,000 workers have died in order to host these mega events, are there any kind of like external motives besides publicity being brought to the country that yeah. these countries take on these mega events? Like, is there some kind of economic profit or so, sustainability between these events? Or are they just literally like forking out all this money to host an event just for publicity? So there's a lot of things to think about here. So publicity is definitely one of them, more like international prestige. The thing about Brazil, for example, with the mega event that I am most familiar with is that the Olympics and World Cup, they bring in mass viewership numbers. So the idea is that Brazil wanted the, the world to see their country and in full, this would result in more trades, trading partnerships and stuff like that. Other motives is that they, the country thought that the Olympics could be used as a foundation to enact other changes, such as transportation upgrades, social infrastructure upgrades. Obviously, this was not the case. I think the event, FIFA got around $12 billion in revenue from sponsorships and stuff like that, but only pay the country of Brazil around $330 million, which is a fraction of the profit. And this money was basically put into the debt that they accumulated from hosting such an event. Remember too, like Brazil, the methods in, in, in paying for such an event came from the tax barrier. So the government policies were changed to increase the indebtedness of the provincial and municipal governments to make sure that these projects can go as planned. The thing in Brazil I, I like to talk about is like, it was such a developing country. They had very, very poor educational infrastructure in the country. They had almost no public health. As you can see now, Brazil is one of the most affected countries in COVID-19. I think they're second in, de in deaths right behind the United States. So the country was not well equipped to host both the Olympics and the World Cup. They decided anyways. I think that the want to, to promote these neoliberal agenda of accumulating capital and increasing trade and stuff like that really, really needs to be addressed in the international community. That compared to Canada, where we have a very democratic government system, in places like Brazil and Qatar and Russia, the government is definitely not the same as in the Western civilization. Yeah, and that's what, one of the main points I want to take home from talking about mega events and poverty is that what can be done to make sure that countries at risk don't take advantage of by the IOC and FIFA like that. I think that countries that are countries must conjoin together and scrutinize these institutions that take advantage of these poor countries trying to fulfill their neoliberal agendas. I actually have another question regarding mega events and especially in the case of Brazil. You have a demographic in a community that literally has a term referencing it's like poor communities, right? Like I'm sure everyone here the audience abroad have all heard of the term favela. We are well aware of poor impoverished conditions of a vast population in Brazil. But my question is this, like, was there any backlash or like community protest from hosting such an event when you have, 
you know, the vast majority of the country's entire population, like struggling to make ends meet and not having proper housing, not having access to proper resources, and yet the government taking on this endeavor to want to host this mega event with not even having the appropriate resources to provide positive health outcomes for their own community. Like, I just wonder whether any like protests or like backlash from the inhabitants of Brazil. So prior to the FIFA World Cup, the FIFA likes to host a, like a, a warm-up event in terms of the Confederations Cup. So this mini tournament is held a year prior to the actual World Cup. So it was held in 2013. So when the Confederations Cup happened, mass protests across the entire country happened. Over 300,000 people from 12 different cities across Brazil poured into the streets to demonstrate their, their anger towards the federal government for hosting these mega events with issues of poverty and poor environmentalism still reigning heavy in the country. So over 300,000 people entered the streets and they were met with severe police brutality, which found its way to the internet and spread an international outrage. But again, these events, these protests were in vain because the events still went through its plan. Yeah. And um, the issues are still present today. You had mentioned that there was, in some areas, almost like a themes of gentrification, like some underdeveloped parts of Brazil in order to accommodate certain like infrastructure for the event. What has been like the lasting effect following the World Cup, the lasting effect of the gentrification of these, you know, low property valued areas that have been turned into, you know, make accommodations for like higher population, like, higher income populations yeah. and such. Like, for what sure. Have, what have happened um, to the people of lower economic socioeconomic statuses in Brazil since the World Cup? So one of the main things that, one of the main criticisms that the uh, FIFA and Olympics faced is that the post-event usage of these infrastructure and these stadiums, the main stadium that was built in Brasilia, the capital of Brazil, is currently overrun by Mother Nature. There's grass growing in the seats. There is no soccer team in Brazil that can use the stadium effectively, which is just terrible like they, they spent billions of dollars on to build these stadiums for a couple of years and then now it's just useless but moving towards like the the long lasting effects of this gentrification it hasn't gotten any better it's actually gotten worse when the events ended because the government had to pay back the debt they had to begin cutting back on social reforms which would help poverty impoverished people they began cutting back on that and increasing the tax rates uh the citizens um, this caused a change in government, as you, I don't know if you know now, but the, the head of the Brazilian government is a right, heavy right-wing extremist. I don't know if you remember him, Justin Trudeau, trying to shake his hand. The Brazilian government looked at him, didn't shake his hand, and just turned right away. So that's the type of people that you're dealing with now. And like one of the main things that, that got him into the position of power is the, the distrust of the previous regime and their decision to host such mega events. So the, the, the fact that these mega events were hosted instead of taking care of the people, um, the people were enraged and this caused them to vote in a right-wing extremist who promised to never let that happen again. And this caused mass taxation. Um, and also relating to the current COVID pandemic, he, the president has been a very skeptical figure of the COVID vaccine, which has reciprocal effects on the nation who are currently again struggling to get over the pandemic as they're one of the worst worst hit nations um in, in, in the international scene have any of you guys heard of what um the term opportunity cost means i'll take that maybe as a no but to enlighten nope. some of our audience or even some of the rest of us on the show Opportunity cost is a common term used in economics, not necessarily pertaining to stocks ex exclusively, but you can kind of evaluate it based on the loss of a potential gain from alternative when one alternative is chosen. So basically why I bring up opportunity cost is that the creation and construction of the World Cup in Brazil seemingly had a negative opportunity cost for the entire nation because rather than investing the billions of dollars to help protect and encourage people of lower socioeconomic statuses to like thrive in Brazil, they spent it on what they thought would be more beneficial to bring more revenue into the country. And in turn, what they ended up doing is creating a circumstance by which they had to invest more money because they put themselves in so much debt. And 
what you have in the end is nobody winning, really. I mean, you have the government losing, you have the inhabitants in these poor areas losing as well. And overall, the opportunity cost of hosting such an event has come to like hurt the country so much, so much so that as you articulated, Ben, there's been no way for them to recover efficiently and effectively since, right? Yeah, there's positives in hosting such mega events, but it depends on the contextual circumstance. If the host country is a country that can't even support and help their own population, maybe it's not the best idea for these institutions such as the IOC and FIFA to host such events in those countries. Maybe like such as the Olympics in Japan. Japan is a developed nation. It has the infrastructure needed to host such events. And these institutions should be looking for countries that already have the current infrastructure to successfully host these events rather than picking countries that don't have no infrastructure and these countries who need to spend billions of dollars in order to, to construct these, these massive stadiums. So that's another point I think about too. Do you think that, I don't want to have to allocate blame to one particular body, but do you think this is more the fault of the hosting nation? Or would you say it's maybe more the fault of like the LOC or FIFA for allowing them, you know, like maybe giving them the optimism and hope to create these events and like kind of taking advantage of their circumstance, knowing that they would invest all that they had? into the events with hopes of maybe creating something more the organization themselves know how like i guess dangerous it would be to do something with not having proper funds and resources that's my thinking yeah i would say it's a bit of both the ioc the main point ioc makes to to deflect criticism is that brazil wanted brazil came to us they expressed their interest of hosting there's a hosting process like a betting process between numerous countries and brazil won but the ioc has to take the executive decision here because they're the ones who accumulate these billions of dollars of sponsorship revenue, but the country is the one that suffers in the long term. So I think increased knowledge of the IOC should be the right moral decision rather than choosing the decision that brings them more money or more checks off more things in the neoliberal agenda. So I, I think blame should be shifted more to the IOC and FIFA rather than the host country because the IOC and FIFA are in positions of power. And they're trying to use that power to make these host countries that aren't able to host correctly, like more at risk to suffering. Yeah, it just seems like overall, these like bigger corporations are taking advantage of them because they welcome these developing countries with open arms, right? But where I have kind of like a moral dilemma in observing all the things you just talked about, you examine the population of the country that's creating this proposal to host the event. And you see that more than half of its population is beneath their respective poverty line. And yet you agree and concur with, oh, yeah, they should invest all the funds they have that can be allocated towards maybe raising the poverty line and taking people out of under it and rather invest it in these like huge mega events. Like I just see that there's like a huge moral discrepancy between all of it, you know, and I, there's no repercussions or reprimands being allocated towards these corporations for allowing such a thing to occur yeah but like again there's a it's all contextual right if the countries can host successfully host they should and it's a great opportunity for the economy and stuff like that and sporting events uh bring a lot of positivity especially related to poverty as i know there's the homeless world cup which is very interesting maybe someone else can touch on that uh, yeah, yeah, I, I can uh, cover that a little bit. So uh, I've been researching the Homeless World Cup, and it seems like uh, their their main goal is to change the kind of perceptions about homeless people and change those kind of stereotypes that make it hard to accept them in public spaces and stuff like that. And I think in terms of mega events that you were talking about before, perhaps it would be better to, if it was possible to uh, run a homeless world cup i know it's the second year in a row that it's been um it's been canceled because of covid but you see all these other sports are going back to normal well without fans but they're all starting to run again you have uh, nhl nba nfl everything ran and you know even the euro cup the euro cup is coming back this summer and uh the world cup is set to go next summer so it's like why not the homeless world cup is on such a smaller scale I don't think it would be as much of a risk and it does promotes a lot for 
the homeless community. You know, the other day I was driving down uh, Keel Street uh, near where I live. We we have homeless, not not an abundant amount, but there's some homeless people, and you know they'll stand at the uh, they'll stand at intersections, and they will beg for money. Or usually, I see a lot more people giving than I've been seeing lately, and I think that's just a result of the pandemic. I read in an article that the perception of homeless people around the globe is that they're dangerous, they're criminal, they're diseased. And I think that kind of disease stereotype is, if anything, being amplified in the pandemic. And I think that if people could see a homeless World Cup occur, then it would be a lot easier for people to realize that, you know, homeless people aren't this plague or whatever that they're made out to be it's it's more like at least the way i've started to look at it is it's it's a circumstance that if the wrong events happen to anybody realistically something that could happen by having these stereotypes it kind of makes it harder to accept homeless people and and help them um, better their own lives and that's one thing that the homeless world cup would be good for and uh it's a shame that we've seen it canceled twice in a row do you think that the obstacle in actually hosting the Homeless World Cup is more due to COVID or do you think it's because of these like negative stereotypes or these like negative discourses surrounding homeless people? You know, you talked about how the perception of homeless people being diseased individuals has been exacerbated by the pandemic itself. You know, I mean, I think too, in part with what you said, like a lot of people's perception of homeless people is that they are like dirty, they are unhygienic, you know what I mean? And I think that goes hand in hand with like the dehumanization of homeless people, right? So my question and my qualm, I guess, so to speak, would be whether or not that plays more of a role than the actual virus itself. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think actually um, that that does play a role, but also it's not as big of a, like it doesn't gross as much as the World Cup would or anything like that. And we're in a society that is so driven by capitalism and you know making money and and stuff like that and you know to an extent it makes sense but it gets to a point where you know as ben said people are suffering at the at the hand of their own government because their government would like to host a world cup and you know generate revenue through it and put in these large bids while while their own people are suffering and you know their own people they have a large uh, population in par- poverty. I think that's, uh, that's also a big factor is that the Homeless World Cup doesn't have the prestige, so, so to say, that the, uh, that the FIFA World Cup or the Olympics has. And I think that plays a, a big role in not being held twice in a row. You know, I don't think any country or brand that is willing to sponsor it will go out of their way to run it during the pandemic, just seeing as they don't see it as important. Now, this would actually be a question for both you and maybe even for Ben. If the Homeless World Cup, let's say, rather than having to invest money to host it, if it was an event that you'd still have to invest money to host it, but it would also bring in like copious amounts of revenue to help develop the economy, do you think that would change the circumstance at all? Given what we know now about like how capitalism plays a huge role in like the hosting of mega events and whatnot? What do you guys think about that? I think it's a common staple of neoliberalism, how everything's about monetary value, the accumulation of this profit that they don't, they might not even need. Obviously, the Homeless World Cup is a great thing, but like it doesn't bring nearly as much money as the Olympics, as I said before, brought in like billions and billions of dollars of profit. It's a common thing of, of, of neoliberalism is obviously it would be great to host these events, but the money is just not there. It's pretty sad society is built like this, where profit is placed among above all. But another thing is the COVID too. COVID allowed us to see these changes in a greater degree. These these these, these socioeconomic differences were exacerbated by COVID, which is a, a great example is like how the homeless World Cup is canceled, whereas uh, these major sporting events that generate money, those are are uh, still being held with mass testing. Let's just put it this way. The society has the ability to run this homeless World Cup, but due to the fact that it brings in little to no profit, it's not even an option at this point. And that's the kind of point I was trying to highlight is that even though it could do good for changing the reputation of homeless people and helping them get back on their feet and, and gain a social network through sport, it doesn't matter because it doesn't bring in money and not as many people will want to watch it. And 
you know, that to me is more of a problem. But at the same time, I guess I can understand. But, you know, in a perfect world, we would want the Homeless World Cup to run and not have to miss two straight years, possibly even three, depending on how countries handle the whole COVID situation. Okay, so we know that in this case, the Homeless World Cup doesn't bring revenue to like the hosting community or city, etc. Do you still think, I'm going to ask this as an honest, opinionated question. Do you think that if the funds were raised through donations to host and fund the event, do you think that the city would permit such an event on public grounds? You know what I mean? I ask that because, you know, we recall the case of Khalil Sevright, where he was using all of his own resources to create tiny shelters. Like he was investing his own time, his own money on like other materials and stuff to build tiny shelters for homeless individuals to keep them warm and what was otherwise like a frightening time, really cold winter alongside COVID and everything. Like there was a lot going on rather than trying to maybe say, oh, here, Khalil, here's some extra money. Maybe go buy some extra wood or materials that you can create some more shelters. They tore all these shelters down. They sued Khalil said, right? Like I just don't see, I want your guys' opinion. What if the funds were readily made available to them? Do you think that they would allow it to happen? Or do you think there would be another obstacle in the way just as an excuse to not give equitable circumstances to these homeless individuals? Um, I think it would all depend if uh, the government got a kickback from it, if they charged the Homeless World Cup for the space. I think at the end of the day, that's what it would come down to. Um, If the government sees it as um, monetizable or if they see it as, um, I think it, it all depends on whether they can get money from it or whether it's really that big of a deal to those who, who are in the area that will watch it. Yeah, so I guess at the end of the day, it's all just about money and that's just how the cookie crumbles, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, the typical, the rich get richer and um, the poor stay poor. They're always going to have that lower class that they're not really going to try to help and the rich are always going to keep getting richer. And that's just uh, the unfortunate reality that we live in here. Yeah, and I think that's a prevailing theme when it comes to considering equitable circumstances for all. It's like the gap has widened so greatly between the rich and the poor, so much so that the poor will almost always stay in a circumstance where they will remain poor and be stagnant in their own lives, whereas the rich just keep getting richer and leaving everyone left to kind of like fight over scrap. Common with this theme, I think we can address gentrification a little bit. And it's even beyond our own community, you know, even beyond the city of Toronto. I think there's some other things happening in the world right now. If someone else has a personal experience, maybe they like to share having watched something like this happen in the past? Oh yeah, I can speak on that. Uh, yeah, my name is Riria Tanita. And I guess it wouldn't be a personal experience, but it'd be something that kind of close to my home country in Japan. And just, I'd like to touch upon kind of the effects that gentrification can have on those who live in poverty internationally. As I think that's really important to explore. And yeah, as a person born and raised in Japan, I'd like to explore the situation in the Nishinari neighborhood located uh, in Osaka, Japan, uh, through an article that I read through recently. And yeah, so first I'd just like to note that Like while people around the world do recognize the major tourist spots in Japan, such as Tokyo, Kyoto, and Osaka, the areas where homelessness and poverty exist uh, often just go unnoticed. And when discussing this issue of gentrification, I believe there's three points that can be considered. And the first point is kind of the historical conditions of the particular area. And when looking at this area in Nishinari neighborhood, um, it's been known for its long established population of residents who struggle from homelessness, uh, unemployment, in addition to high crime rates and riots among um, kind of day laborers going back to the 1960s. So it's been a long, long lasting issue. I actually came across this uh, housing and land survey from the Statistic Bureau of Japan. It says that people with low income defined as who have less than 4 million yen per year was at 82.3% within the Nishinari neighborhood of Osaka. And I think it was personally shocking for me to kind of read about that 82.3% of the people in this neighborhood in a 2008 survey had it been in low income. And I think despite the neighborhood's uh, label or reputation uh, as the slum of Osaka, 
It's actually recently becoming a, a booming tourist spot due to the intriguing contrast in Japan's conceptualization as a clean, safe, and polite society. And I think at this point, we can refer to kind of the second key consideration of gentrification, which includes the discussion on the ways that uh, disinvestment or investment patterns uh, change or occur in these neighborhoods. And with the case of the Nishinari neighborhood, it's long been an area that was disinvested due to the conceptualization as the slum of Osaka. And it's unfortunate to see that the, the conceptualization of the area itself has played a major role in the disinvestment, the major cities of Osaka. But now we see that the growing tourist population pre-pandemic within the neighborhood uh, and the nearby areas of the Nishinari neighborhood have led to the increasing demand for things like hotels uh, and temporary living spaces for these foreign visitors. And this has therefore resulted in the change in the investment pattern uh, where larger businesses are considering investing this area. And I think this current situation kind of uh, hits on this prime example of the consequences of neoliberal system and this concept of the crisis of affordability. And the large Hi, everybody. My name is Mackenzie, and I just wanted to hop on the points that Michael made about the features of structures kind of going directly against uh, people that are experiencing poverty. So especially um, in a place like Toronto, where I did grow up, uh, you can see firsthand park benches, um, railings being put on them, uh, different areas and parks aren't available um, to specific people, you know, they wouldn't have water fountains, so it wouldn't, people wouldn't be able to go there to access water um, and washrooms as well. A lot of places don't allow washrooms to people that don't pay to be in there, um, just to customers. So it's really difficult for some people experiencing poverty to find comfort and um, a place to enjoy a space, in Toronto especially. Um, now, the reason why that did st stick out to me is because I wanted to talk about gentrification and um, kind of issues that were growing in the greater Toronto area, um, just on a local scale. I did grow up in the GTA, and I also did go to U of T, so I've actually been able to see um, firsthand the uh, effects of gentrification on the city and even with students as well and, and friends of mine. So, um, sorry guys, just give me one second here. Mackenzie? Yeah? Yeah, sorry, I was just gonna ask, do you, is it possible at all for you to uh, continue maybe like out of your AirPods and just speaking to your laptop mic, it just, it come, it's coming off, at least on my end, a little bit muffled and I'm not sure how that'll translate into the recording. It might okay. just- Okay, let me, else? yeah, let me take out my AirPods then, let's Hi there, my name is Mackenzie, and I just quickly wanted to jump on the point that Michael made about features of structures, uh, especially in Toronto, the GTA. I've been able to see firsthand park benches, the architecture of public spaces be completely designed to eliminate the availability and use of the space to people experiencing poverty. And I think that the effects of gentrification are just increasing more and more. I also did want to talk about the topic of gentrification, but I did want to do it on a local scale. I myself grew up in the GTA and um, went to school in the city. So this kind of hits home for me. Now, the issue that I did want to talk about that is exponentially growing in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area is the disinvestment of public spaces and gentrification. Now, just to go over what gentrification is for anyone that doesn't know, it is the process that occurs when wealthy individuals move into a poor urban area and they change the character, attract new businesses, and improve housing. Now, this generally does result in the displacement of the current inhabitants of the area. 
Now, the greater Toronto area is heavily affected by this, and low-income individuals are the ones who are suffering the most. Now, to kind of help with a better understanding of the effects of gentrification in the GTHA, I wanted to bring upon and analyze the topic of the three cities. The three cities was a framework that was created that sectioned Toronto off into three separate neighborhoods based on income changes from 1970 to 2005. So this framework encouraged people to see the trends of gentrification and income polarization in the GTA, more specifically Toronto, and how these long-term trends are just increasing the segregation of the city and negatively affecting those along the poverty line. So I think we did mention before, there's this issue where the rich are just getting richer and the poor, they're just getting more poor and no one's helping them and there's just becoming this greater divide between the two. I will break down the three different um, neighborhoods that were based on income changes, and they were defined as city one, two, and three. So city one is the high income area of Toronto. So this area is known for being the central part of the city. It has easy access to transportation, subways, streetcars. The income of individuals in this area is very high and it will continue and is continuing to increase exponentially. Now going completely opposite of city one is city three. So city three is a low income area and it's been experiencing substantial declines in neighborhood income since the start of 1970. City 3 is located towards the edges of Toronto in the more northeastern and northwestern areas. So that leaves us with City 2. City 2 is just the middle income area that lies in between City 1 and 3. In this neighborhood, the income trends have remained consistent and have been within an average level. The most important takeaway from the three cities framework is the dividing of the groupings of the cities and how they are changing at completely different rates and consistently moving further apart. After analyzing the long-term trends from 1970 to 2005, you can see very many noticeable changes. First, the proportion of the cities in Toronto has changed drastically. The proportion of middle-income neighborhoods significantly decreased from 66% to 29%. High income areas have just slightly increased from 15 to 19%, but where it gets really sad is that low income areas have increased drastically from 19% all the way up to 50%. So individuals with low income are being driven out of central city areas to live in more stressful and inaccessible living conditions. This is only gonna continue to happen unless changes are made. Now, secondly, the low-income neighborhoods that were in the inner city in the 1970s, they've all been pushed out towards the northeastern and northwestern areas of Toronto. This has drastically decreased the availability of reliable transit and services, and they have very limited access to a lot of basic necessities that they need to live comfortably. Now, the middle-income neighborhood will continue to disappear uh, and decrease as the polarization of Toronto progresses to create these wealthy neighborhoods. Now, this is only just going to cause more disadvantaged neighborhoods and low-income areas to grow. The effects of gentrification and income polarization can only be slowed by creating more affordable housing in these low-income areas and just ensuring that individuals in the areas have access to transportation and services to be able to live comfortably. After analyzing the three cities framework, I think that it really gives everyone an idea of how low-income individuals are being pushed out of their homes and how people with higher incomes are coming in and taking over. So from this, I wanted to talk about some local examples of gentrification, more specifically in Toronto and Hamilton. It is no secret that real estate pricing in the GTHA has grown exponentially over recent years. In Toronto specifically, the development of skyscrapers, condos, new retail, and public investments became a recipe for gentrification and influenced the skyrocketing real estate prices. Locations such as Jane and Finch, Rexdale, and Malvern were once seen as not suitable for living until it was the only areas left in the city. So many real estate agents in Toronto have made note that it used to be that when people said Malvern, the answer was a strict no. 
but now everyone just wants to get in and they're just trying to find a place to get in. Neighborhood values are increasing by as much as 20% per year and individuals continue to buy in. Now, as these prices continue to rise, the effects of gentrification will only grow stronger and continue to push those low-income families, singles, students, and seniors to the outskirts of the city from relentless affordability pressures and further away from accessible living. Now, all of us, we are students at U of T, are all of us on this podcast right now. And for any listeners that are kind of in the GTA, it's very well known that it is very hard to find affordable housing. It really hits home, especially being a student in the city. And because of everything with COVID, it's so difficult to be able to make enough money as a student to be able to live in the city. And the only way some of us can be able to afford that is to move out west, which is exactly what I did myself. From that, I do want to talk about Hamilton. Because people are moving outside of Toronto, they're actually moving into places such as Hamilton. So the gentrification and high housing prices in Toronto have driven people to move further away uh, and further into the GTHA. Unfortunately, because of this, Torontonians are driving countless low-income residents from their once affordable homes and neighborhoods. This is especially happening in Hamilton. Hamilton is experiencing a scramble of affordable rental housing and is also coping with a significant increase in homeless people, including 15 tent cities, Members of the Hamilton community have already tried to stage protests and demand budgeting for housing initiatives, but they've never been given a solution. In less than five years, this is between the years of 2014 to 2020, the average rent in Hamilton increased by 39%, and this is recorded to be the largest annual jump in rent rates in all of Canada. In 2019, almost half of the renters in Hamilton were using over a third of their income for rent. So you can imagine if some of these renters are students that also need to pay for their semesters and their schooling. And every year it just gets more difficult and more challenging to house people because of the gentrification process. With over 60,000 Hamiltonians losing their job during the pandemic, gentrification is quickly amplifying the living crisis for many individuals. Now, with minimal help from the city, the move of the Torontonians and gentrification have created alarming rates of unaffordable housing and homelessness in this once trendy and hip area, which is this causing and forcing low-income singles and families to relocate. To speak honestly on kind of my own experience with Hamilton, I'll speak a little bit about my wife and I, my, our own experience actually looking for a place. So we currently live in a basement apartment in Burlington. Mind you, it's already really expensive from the get-go. Like I don't really see too much of a difference in the average price of an apartment between Burlington and Toronto, but in Hamilton, it's just really crazy to see the impact it's had on gentrification as across one side of the street. Like, let's say, I think I'm not sure that you'd be familiar with it, Mackenzie, but on James Street, on like one side of the street where it's, I guess, considered a more higher income pocket within Hamilton, you have rent prices on the super like high end of the spectrum. And then across the street, there will be some other complexes whereby rent prices are maybe like in half. And that's also like highly occupied by homeless individuals or those of like lower socioeconomic statuses. And As a result, I've seen a lot over the years of people who would typically like demographics that would go to the one end of the street, move down to the other, therefore kind of mitigating the ability of people of lower socioeconomic statuses to like inhabit these areas. And they've since over the years, like transformed into these places that only kind of accommodate people of higher socioeconomic statuses. So I guess what I would try and ask out of this, and this will just be your own personal opinion, is do you think that this type of gentrification is a cycle that almost entirely encompasses a full circle, whereby you have people in one city being pushed so much so that they have to inhabit the outskirts of one city or like one particular city until they have to and are forced to move to a different city and then keep on stretching over and over and over and over because I believe like maybe 50 plus years ago this gentrification process was going on in Mississauga and then it skipped Oakville and Burlington and then moved right to 
Hamilton and then, you know, how much further west or how much further east are you going to go respectively? Do you think that this is just kind of like a endless cycle, so to speak? I definitely think that gentrification is a cycle that will continue to happen in many areas unless there are changes that will be made. And as of right now, especially in the pandemic, I think that it's not a top priority for a lot of cities in Hamilton had that protest and they were basically asking for budget cuts from police. They wanted half of the budget for policing for housing initiatives and they just wouldn't do it. So I think that as long as there is a want for housing in a specific area, people will be able to charge or have any asking price that they like as long as someone buys it. I I think it will continue until there is an actual policy put in place that stops people from kicking low-income individuals out of areas. I just wanted to ask about like any possible solutions to this, to this phenomena, not specifically gentrification, but homelessness in general. I One of the things I, I took from lecture in the earlier part would be the Housing First program, where certain Northern European countries would provide homeless people with a, a housing accommodation. I, I thought that this was a really, really good idea since allowing them to have a house not having to worry about rent and stuff like that, so that how so they can focus on things like their mental health, addiction, maybe even their physical health, getting their life back in order, building lo- yeah. like housing for people who who are very 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 wealthy and they can afford something and kind of neglecting the no, I I completely agree with with all of that. One thing I did want to mention. I think that providing housing for low-income individuals and people who are homeless is so important because people who are homeless, even if they're trying so hard to get off of the streets or to find a job, sometimes you can't even get a job unless you have an address or you have a place that you're staying. So we, we need to provide these opportunities for these people to get better. We're, we're not helping them. We're just letting the population grow even more. And, you know, we we need to step in and, and we need to make changes before there's more tent cities, um, not just in Hamilton, but in, in many different areas, possibly coming, you know, further into the GTA. One thing before we close the podcast, I'd like to ask all of you is how much do you guys believe into natural rights and housing as a natural right for all individuals? Ben, if you'd like to go first, if you have any two cents on that, I'd like to hear your opinion. It's a great proposition, but it's kind of difficult to implement due to the amount of people who are impoverished and homeless. But I think that it would bring great uh, effects to it if, if it was actually implemented in a successful way. As I said before, housing first, providing them with a clean bed, having them not worry, oh, where am I going to wake up tomorrow? Where am I, where's my next meal going to come? Not having to worry about that and structure in a home uh, allows for true therapy and true healing to happen. So I think that it's a very, it's a very good idea, but uh, implementing it in a wide scale, it proves difficult. And I don't think I have the, the knowledge to, to do that. Anybody else like to share their opinion on whether or not they believe that housing is and should be a natural right for everyone? I agree with that. Um, One thing I would add is even a social network, like to to have a group of people around you that you can build a social network with and and feel social inclusion because it's such a big part of life. And I think that's one thing that I've pulled from this whole pandemic, just, you know, for relating it back to that meeting with people and having friends and and people to talk to is actually a huge part of life. And it's insanely important for your mental health, or at least that's what I believe. So I think, you know, along with housing, it would come a social network and, and a group of people that you live around that you can call a community. And I think that's really important to people. Yeah. And I think just to add on to that, um, yeah, I did like, I simply agree with the idea of kind of that sense of inclusion and the ability to be like this member of the community. I think that it also hits on having the sense of safety with people kind of you're familiar with and having that sense of community does provide more safety. And I think also going back to uh, Ben's point, I think everyone does have the right to just have this standard of living adequate, 
uh, mental health, physical health. And I feel like, yeah, I think that it's not difficult to implement, but it's something that should be promoted because adequate housing is very much one of the universal uh, basic needs. Now, before we wrap things up, I'd like to just spread this one question to the entire group here. And that would be, what do you guys think or have as one suggestion that you could think could be implemented into our everyday communities to help mitigate some of the negative health outcomes and discrepancies that people who are homeless or those who are in poverty experience on a day-to-day basis. My one implementation would probably be to not penalize individuals for being homeless. I say that because if you guys recall in January when Quebec first implemented their curfew, homeless people were being fined for being outside past curfew. So you're already putting a population that's in a particularly vulnerable scenario into a circumstance in which they are further moved down into the dirt. You just kind of leave them in extenuating circumstances in which they cannot remove themselves from a condition to once again thrive, you know, and that's all obviously exacerbated by the conditions of COVID. Maybe even educational programs that reduce the stigmatization of homeless people. In society, they're painted as these these horrible, these, they're pushed to the outskirts of society. And maybe that, maybe like increased mainstream media coverage about homelessness and the multifactorial reality of homelessness. So there's not only one thing. And maybe that, maybe acknowledging the fact that homelessness can happen to anyone is something that would make people more open to helping them. One thing that I do wish was implemented more was community involvement. I think I think uh, programs like the YMCA and stuff like that that uh, people can go to to be a part of a community and to uh, have a facility that they can go to. I think those kind of things help a lot. You know, again, promoting social inclusion and all that. And I just think if there are more programs like that to help people get back on their feet or make connections, I think it would help a lot. I was kind of thinking of the similar direction of just this integrating these people in homelessness kind of into like community involvement activities and I think that kind of hits on yeah like the YMCA's that were talked about and I think that would be kind of integrating the homeless people with just being able to reduce that gap between the rich and the poor and just slowly just by for example social networks and then just having that support network would be a great uh, beneficial for the uh, people in poverty. All right, then, guys, on that note, I'd like to wrap up. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening and tuning in. Hopefully, with everything we talked about today, you can go out into your own communities and spread some awareness and initiate some change. Until next time, talk to you guys later.